Uh, We're going to close up our series about the four Gospels here today. And I know in and of itself, that doesn't sound like a very exciting thing to do. Um, We oftentimes, between series, will take a few books of the Bible and try to figure out and get an overview of what they're all about. The reason I do that is I truly want to take the intimidation wrapper off of the Bible. It's not an intellectual thing. Many of you could run circles around me intellectually, and I, I know that, and I'm okay with that. But when, we, when it comes to spiritual things, especially with the Bible, and we open it up, and we have words that we can't pronounce, and there are people that we don't know from places that we've never heard of, that many don't even exist anymore, they're just piled under layers and layers and layers of dirt now on the other side of the world, it, it just gets a little complicated and frustrated, and no one likes to feel silly or ignorant. So when you can't figure things out, you just want to quit and move on. But I want to help take that wrapper off of your Bible so that between Sundays, you're spending time with God. And just like many of you, there are times I'm reading through it and I'm thinking, I don't really get that and I don't understand that and I don't remember who he is or I don't remember where that is, but it doesn't keep me from continuing to work through that and encounter God in his word. So that's my desire. That's why we do that. And we're working through the four first books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And even if you don't own a Bible, you've probably heard of those four books and you've heard of the term gospel, which just means good news. But these are the four books that detail the life of Jesus according to these men. And we've talked about Matthew, Mark, and Luke already. And today, obviously, we'll get to John. But I want a little 20-second to 30-second overview because each of these gospels, each of these books is written differently to different people, and we need to know that going into it. And so maybe some of the questions and confusion make sense. Matthew is a story about Jesus that is written to Jewish people with an understanding that he's helping Jewish people realize how Jesus is the answer to all of those Jewish prophecies and how he is the one they've been waiting on. So if you don't know much about Jewish history and you're not a Jewish person, it might not always be that important like the beginning, so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And if you've ever tried to read through that, you probably gave up and just went to the end. It's not important to you, but it was really important to Matthew's audience, that Jewish audience. Mark was written point blank, just bypassed the whole birth Bethlehem thing, moving on, like wasn't that important for him. He's writing just the facts. He said, here it is, here's what Jesus did, here's what Jesus said, Jesus is the son of God, deal with it, move on. In other words, he was from New York probably. Or for, he was, you know, I can imagine him being from Long Island, like coming in saying, I don't know about you Southern people, but let me just tell you, this, this, and this, deal with it. That, that was Mark. Um, or written by your husband or ex-husband, whatever, probably. That's point blank, here we go, moving on. Not a lot of detail, not a lot of explanation. Uh, Luke The third book we have, uh, like Matthew, got a lot of his info from Mark, but Luke was not a Jewish person. Like most of us, he was a Gentile, a non-Jew. So he's writing to other non-Jewish people saying, yeah, Jesus is Jewish and he's the Jewish Messiah, but he's also here for all of us. He came to be the king of the world. So Luke is writing to explain that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are lumped together because they're very similar, 90% of Mark is found in Matthew and Luke. So you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and sometimes you go, is that in, which one was that in? It's that kind of thing. You get to John, and John doesn't write like that. 
John is not concerned necessarily with exactly what happened around a particular time in a particular place. You don't get the birth of Jesus. You don't get a lot of those parts. John's writing differently. And part of it is because John wrote so much later. Um, Jesus was resurrected when he was 33 years old. So around 33 to 35 AD, somewhere in there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written within 30 years of Jesus being there. And when their books were being circulated, uh, I mean, the truth was being tested. Because you could be reading the book and someone go, no, I was actually there at that one. No, I was there when Jesus did that. No, I was a part of that. No, my mama was at the feeding of the 5,000. This is how that went. They they could talk. They were all still around. And Jesus saw 500 people or more after he was resurrected. So there were witnesses there then. When John wrote, he was an 85, 88-year-old man looking back on his life, realizing he had probably passed most of his travel time and he was going to put it all together 30 years or so after the others were written. So John's tackling a different kind of thing because by this time, the gospel's been twisted a little and distorted in many places. Um, By this time, the message was different. Back then, people just said, Jesus is alive. Like that was the message. You went to church today, what'd you hear? Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Like that was the talk. You kind of got it if you got Jesus is alive. You add 30, 60 years on this thing and you've got plenty of time for some preachers to get up and start preaching some crazy stuff. And I don't mean just like I can't understand it, but like that's just, I don't think that's true. Like that was happening around John's time. So he's writing to tell people, I don't care what you've heard by this time and I don't know where you've been, but Jesus is God in the flesh and he came to bring life to us. So his message is a little different. And that's why it begins the way it begins in John chapter one. So before we open up, and if you have a Bible, we'll be in the book of John. We'll start in the first chapter. You're welcome to use your phone if you're a Bible app kind of person. Um, so if someone around's checking, just say, I'm not posting, I'm reading God's word. So they just kind of deal with it. Um, you're actually doing something here that's helpful. Uh, we'll do that in just a moment. I want us to pray briefly before we start up. God, thank you for loving us. We are your people You have our attention, and we ask that you speak to us now. We ask that you would give us minds to understand your word. You'd give us a heart to believe your word and give us hands that are willing to apply your word. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. We love you, God, our Father. Amen. In John chapter one, verse one, John begins and writes, in the beginning was the word And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So John is really clear to his people. Like I'm writing to tell you that Jesus is not just a messenger sent. He's not just a great prophet. That's not a very nice guy that did a lot of godly things. He was God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word actually was God, and nothing has been made since creation without him. Jesus is all in all. He's God shown up in the flesh. So he's really clear about that, and so it's obvious who he's addressing and trying to speak to during this time. But his purpose is in the back of the book, the next to last chapter. So in John chapter 20, verse 30, and just as a reminder, John did not write with chapters and verses. We gave those later to help us make sense of a lot of things. But in what we know is John chapter 20, verse 30, 
John wrote, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He said, I could have written a lot more. And you get to the end of John, he literally says, there's so much more. It was, none of the, all the books in the world could not have been able to contain all this. But he said, I could have written a lot more, but I wrote these particular things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And by believing, have life. Now that term life is that thread throughout the book. Every movie you watch has a thread, something that ties it all together. It's not just two hours or three hours of a bunch of different stories. It, there is a thread that weaves them all together. When you read a book, there's a thread, and sometimes you don't see it until the very end, and it shows back up, and you realize it. John has a thread, and that thread is the phrase or the term life, but we're going to give that thread a tag team partner. It's kind of together. It's life and light. So life and light that tag team is the thread throughout the book. And as you read through the book of John, if you try this week just to read as much as you can, you'll find that phrase, life and light, or just the word life on its own or light on its own, over and over and over again. So that's the thread that weaves everything together because from John's perspective, he is going to share the story of Jesus but not just with facts and this is what happened and this is what was said. He's painting a picture. And from his perspective, when Jesus came, it was like going into a dark place and turning on a light. And what followed that light was life. And Jesus has been giving life to person after person ever since. He, that's the picture he's painting, a painting, a picture of life and light. And it's a powerful light. In John chapter one, verse four, he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's writing here in around 95 or so AD, and he's saying, I know what it feels like. I know it seems like we live in a very, very dark and dead place but he's still alive and he's still working and he's still moving. And even when we don't see it, he's working. He says, that life has not been overcome. In him was life and that light was the light of all, or life was the light of all mankind. Now, this is not a new phrase. When people read John's book for the first time, and I'm sure there were people that read it and said, oh, it's no good, it's, it's not a bestseller and on and on. People had critiques for his books, just like we critique everything we hear or say or read now. But if they're paying attention, the beginning of John is a callback to the beginning of their Hebrew Bibles. Uh, you have the beginning of five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you're Jewish, you know that's the Torah. And that's the beginning of the Bible. And John wrote, and we read this a minute ago, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. Then he went on to say in him was life, that life was the light of all mankind. Now, let me read for you, if you're not familiar with it, the beginning of the entire Bible, Genesis chapter one, verse one. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. 
I mean, you don't have to work hard to see that those are very, very similar. So when John's looking at the life of Jesus, he says it's much like creation, how God's spirit's hovering over what is dark and dead. And then he said, light it up. And little by little, light began to make a difference. And life followed light because once light in creation shows up, then you have new plants, you have new animals, you have new produce, you have new experiences, you've got new adventure, you've got new, 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 an explosion of creativity and color and power and purpose. All of that happened after God said, let there be light. So John's writing saying, the light from heaven showed up. In him, in the life was the light of all mankind. So from his perspective, that is the life that Jesus is giving us, a life that is following his light and it's exploding with creativity and power and possibility and hope. There's so much. And he says, that's what our lives are supposed to be like. That's the picture he created. Well, just like people back then, you and I look at that and go, I don't know if that describes my life. I don't know that my life can be described right now as an explosion of creativity and possibility and hope and wonder and on and on. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm kind of discouraged. I'm kind of in a dark place. I'm a little depressed. I'm struggling. I'm putting up a fake uh, face here. I'm trying to hide it. I, I don't know that that's my life. And people even then were wondering what's going on. And John knew that. They were living in a dark place. They were talking about God's kingdom has shown up and yet they looked out their windows and saw Roman soldiers saying, I don't know about that kingdom, but we got a kingdom here. And if you don't stop following Jesus, you're going with me. And Christians were being drugged out of houses of worship. They were being executed oftentimes at other moments just in prison and solitary confinement. It was, it was tough. And yet you've got this group of people saying the kingdom has arrived, a kingdom of power and purpose and hope and so John's writing to help them see what's going on. If the kingdom's here, if life and light have shown up, then what's the problem? And John said in verse nine of that first chapter, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So more light talk, more life talk. He said the light was here, but the light didn't recognize, was not recognized by the people. And you can't receive something you don't recognize. And the light was right in front of them the whole time and they just lived in darkness. So this life and light is the thread, but the real mystery is this idea of believing and becoming. That if you believe, God gives you the right to become children of God. That somehow there's this connection of, if you believe, then you become. And they struggled with it, and we struggle with it even now, because at times we feel like we haven't done it right. Like we think we've believed, and yet we're standing around and watching people who have this mad love affair with Jesus, and we're thinking, I don't, I don't know that I've done this. Like, I love him, but I, I believe him. I, I, I believe everything that he said. I don't stand up in the middle of a sermon and say, I disagree, pastor. Like, I, I get it. We're, okay, I'm not against it. What, what am I missing along the way? And John wrote, here's the verdict in chapter three, verse 19. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light 
because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen, or seen plainly, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. He said, the problem is not an intellectual problem, not that I don't understand it, not that I'm believing wrong. He said, the problem here is that people just love the darkness too much. They love what they do in the shadows. At times, I wanna convince myself that the reason anyone doesn't believe is because I haven't communicated it well. And I beat myself up over it and go, oh, if I was better at communicating, if I could get it simpler, if I could talk more deeply, if I could whatever, I could do it because it's got to be just a misunderstanding. Surely they would wanna give their all to Jesus if they understood it all. Or I've convinced myself at times to think, well, so-and-so is just so intelligent. Like they're asking questions I don't get and it's the physics and how does science work with it? And I feel like it's an intellectual thing. Or maybe it's experiential, like you've just had a bad experience with Christian people, or you've had a bad experience in church, or you had someone hurt you, or someone lead you astray, or someone push you away, or some spiritual representative like me that just messed things up or messed you up, and that's why. And we have all of these reasons, but John wrote, the reason that they're not recognizing and receiving it is they just like the darkness. They enjoy hanging out in the dark. There's stuff that they care about more than stepping into the light and risking it all for the sake of following him. Well, this struggle to grasp what it's all about and this struggle to figure out belief is not new. And maybe the best and most well-known example of this is actually in John chapter three, where we have this invitation that Jesus offers to have a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And he shows up. And Nicodemus is a really, really smart guy and he knows a lot about religion. And he talks to God and he said, or talks to Jesus and he says to him, listen, we believe in what you said. We believe that you're someone different. We believe that you've not come from a place that we're familiar with. We believe that God has sent you. Like we believe all of the things that you said, but it feels like I'm missing something. Because I believe, I just don't feel like I've become. I believe, but I don't feel like I've become a part of God's family. I don't feel like I've become a part of God's kingdom. I don't feel like I've become one of his children. What am I missing? And God said to Nicodemus, or Jesus said to Nicodemus, okay, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus said, born again. What? That's impossible. How can a man be born again? So he was sarcastic, like many of you. How could that happen, Jesus? Will you go, go home to my mom and ask her? You know, no, obviously not, Nicodemus. I'm talking about not being born of water, of flesh, but being born of the spirit, born from above. You've gotta be born again. And if you're not born again, you're not mine. You don't belong to me. You're not a child of God if you're not born again. So he was trying to figure out, okay, I believe these things, but I don't feel like I have become what I should become. What am I missing? Well, John explains it in verse 16. After Jesus and Nicodemus spoke, John has something he writes here. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Say, wait a minute, I thought there was more than believing because Nicodemus said, we believe. But notice that John's invitation is not to believe Jesus. He said, whoever believes in him. Not whoever believes what Jesus said. Whoever believes Jesus will be eternal life. Whoever believes in believes Jesus. You believe the concept of, you believe about Jesus. But that's not the invitation. The invitation was always to believe in Jesus. And until you and I are willing to say, God, I'm putting it all at your feet, no matter how this turns out, he says, only then will you have the right to become a, children, a child of God, a children of God. Who's from the South now? A children of God. Only then will you have the right to become a child of God. When my son was in fifth grade, I took him on our first men's trip, guy trip. It was going to be one of those life-changing moments, only dad and son. We were gonna do some things that he had never done before. We were gonna spend time together. We were gonna go not even have a plan, just go find a hotel as we drove by. Because he, even in fifth grade, knew like when mom and daughter are with us, like we gotta have a plan. Where are we staying? How long are we staying? What time we get up? What time? With two guys, you have no plan. You just drive. And so it was our first time to be able to do that together. And we went on the trip, and we didn't know where to go, so um, we went to Ohio, which I don't really know how to explain that. But anyway, we were trying to find a place to go, and it was a little bit of a makeup trip. Um, I had taken his sister to Guatemala on a mission trip, and so Guatemala, Ohio, anyway. So we went to Ohio because there, was a, there were several things within the Cincinnati area that we could all do at one time and make that trip over a weekend. So we went to Ohio, and we went to our first baseball game together, his first major league game. So we went to a Reds game. That's not necessarily our team, but we gotta go do that. So I took him, we had that experience, had a blast. That night, we went to a Buffalo Wild Wings in Cincinnati and had what would become our yearly tradition of watching the entire first round of the NFL draft together. We found the little Wild Wings and stayed four hours, closed the place down, he's 11, closed the place down, having this father-son watch the draft together. And we do it even now. This year, I'll drive seven and a half hours to him and his college. We'll go to Wild Wings there in a, a nearby town and we'll watch it. Like That was the beginning of something special for us. We went to the zoo and we're at the Cincinnati Zoo. And due to some unforeseen things going on in the zoo, right there in the zoo, we had the talk. Just gonna put that there for a minute. I didn't know how else to explain the situation. So we had a talk, we had the talk. And I'll never forget standing there and we had just kind of had the talk and I asked Brock, I said, do you have any questions? He said, nope, like moving on. So I grabbed my phone, I texted my wife, I said, we just had the talk. And she was like, well, about what? And I said, you're such a sweet person. I said, I said, the, capital T, H, and E. And she said, for the love of God, what, why? You know, and I just said, I'll explain later. That's a long story. So we moved on, and um, the next day, our last day together, we were going to uh, Kings Island, the uh, amusement park there, and uh, outside Cincinnati, I guess. But went to Kings Island, got to the place, and when we walked in, 
at the entrance, there was what's called a sky coaster. It's the bungee, but it's the swing, you know. So we saw the sky coaster there, and Brock looked up and kind of amazed. I mean, he's fifth grade, and he was just going, wow. And he couldn't take his eyes off of it. And we realized that wasn't part of the thing. You pay extra and all that. So we looked at it, and I didn't think he was tall enough anyway to do that. So we kept moving on, and as we were going on into the park, he just kept looking back at that sky coaster. I said, son, is that what you want to do? He said, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. So we went over, and I made sure that his sketchers had a little bit of stuff in the shoe to raise them up a little, and I, I showed him how to you know, tiptoe it up. When we got to the line, and he just barely came close, and they were like, okay, come on in. So we went in. We got in line, and I made the unfortunate decision to take a picture and send it to my wife and say, this is going down. <laughs> and uh, she replied back. I, the, I could see the bubbles happening. She's nervous while we were gone. And she said, oh, um, with who, you? And I said, us. And she said, so help me. And then I thought, I don't need to read the rest of the, you know. <laughs> so I looked away. The man there said, you need to put all your loose belongings and shoes and, you know, all that stuff. So we went to the locker. It included phone, you know, so you're putting it all in there. So we tucked it away, and for the next 45 minutes, we stand there in line wait on our moment, not knowing that during those 45 minutes, there were 45 messages coming through my phone <laughs> saying, so help me, if you take my son up on that, you know, all these things were just, I didn't know. We're just standing in line, having a good time, father, sunning it up. We got to the front, they wrap us up in that burrito looking thing and would hook us together and then they'd pull us all the way up a few hundred feet in the air. And we got there and we looked down and the truth was we hadn't done anything yet. Now, my son had shown great courage. I had shown great deceptive ability getting him on there. Um, I was showing courage. I was risking my marriage unbeknownst to me to doing this. There were a lot of things happening so we're, but we're pulled up a few hundred feet above everything else. But until that cord was pulled, we hadn't ridden that ride. We were just a part of the experience. We had not ridden it. So we got to the top. And there's a cord between Brock and me. And I looked over at him. He looked at me. And we're way up there. You know, our faces are red. We're kind of tilting in the wind a little bit. He said, what's now? And I said, well, we've got to pull that cord he said, when are you going to do it? And we just were talking, you know, and they're like, any time now, you know. I said, I, I think this is a you moment. He said, what? I said, I think you need to decide when we go. He said, Dad, I can't even reach the... I said, yeah, you can. And I thought, this will be the father moment. And I looked at him. I said, son, do you trust me? He said, yeah. I said, whenever you're ready, pull that cord, and we're going to make a memory. He said, all right. He leaned forward, he pulled that thing, and we came down screaming through, seeing all the stuff. He screamed to the top of his lungs. We had such an awesome, awesome time. But it started with him trusting me enough to pull that cord. And my core fear when I'm with you every Sunday, and if you're new, I'll be back here again, 1030 every week. Uh, but if, my core fear every Sunday as I'm looking out at a group of people that I care about, many of you I love dearly, and you think you've believed, but you've never believed in Jesus. You've just never disagreed with the facts. You've never disagreed with the sermon. You've never disagreed with what people have told you about him. But you've never 
stepped up and said, Jesus, everything I have, I lay at your feet. And when I get up from my knees, if I rise up a powerful spiritual warrior who changes the world, then so be it. Or if I just rise up someone who can now call you father, so be it. But either way, it is yours. And until we do that, we haven't trusted in Jesus. Until then, we're just believing about Jesus. And the invitation that John gives is not for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes all the things about Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. He said, whoever believes in him, who trusts him enough to say, Jesus, my home, my work, my reputation, my heart, my body, my finances, my doubts, my anxieties, all of it is yours, every bit of it. I believe in you. I trust you. Do what you will with it. If you return it, great. If you don't, I belong to you. And that's the invitation John gives us in chapter three. And that's the invitation he gives us today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us enough to invite us into a relationship with you. And for the people in this place who have believed about Jesus but never believed in Jesus, God, I don't know how else to say it. I just pray that they would open up their hearts today to you and say, Jesus, I'm ready to come home. Come into my life. And God, for those who have believed in you and had a moment like that at some point in their past, but forgot that they had committed to leave it all at your feet, maybe today is the day to return to that first love, to return to that moment when we said, God, I surrender all of it to you. It is all yours. I put it at your feet and I'm not coming back to take it again. Take my hope, take my dream, take my finance, take my relationships, take my uh, future, take my job, take everything and do what you will. I am pulling the cord today. I'm gonna fall into your arms or whatever you have planned for me. God, thank you for a church family that has people who have surrendered and it's obvious in the way they live. And I pray that they would continue to serve as encouragement to us as we try to find the courage to follow suit and do the same thing. To do something that even Nicodemus struggled to do as an intelligent, understanding man to lay it all at your feet and to be born again. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Would you stand, please, as we respond now in worship?